Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. I like that you always do that. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Richard Leibovitz. All right, please like us on Facebook, follow us on the Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And make sure to listen next year, too. Yeah, we have a <laughs> brand new board coming on. Just hired a brand new board. We're very excited. I think we put together a pretty good team. And excited to see what they do with Dialogue De Novo in the future. Our guest today is Professor Alan Raphael. He joined the podcast to talk about working on the case of John Wayne Gacy, one of America's most prolific serial killers. I think it was he was convicted of thirty-three, uh, 33 murders. Yeah, yeah. So it was it, it was fascinating to hear his experience with the case. And I think you guys will find the interview pretty interesting. I showed up late. As, so as I, he does. I, I, I apologize for I, that. Our fearless leader. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, your editor-in-chief. It is a team effort. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So sit back. <laughs> unfortunately. Relax, enjoy, and give it up for the great and powerful Alan Raphael. I say we just jump in. Okay. All right. So nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, for those who don't know, this is Professor Alan Raphael. How are you this morning? I'm really great. Thank you. Looking forward to the end of the school year? I am indeed. <laughs> it's exams, a uh, lot of exams tomorrow. Uh huh. So why don't you just, because we just met, uh, fill me in a little bit about. You know, how long you've been at the law school, how you wound up here, what classes you teach? I, I've been here for 35 years. Uh, I, uh, so you're getting used to it? That's right. <laughs> and uh, for the last several years, I've been teaching constitutional law and two different uh, basic criminal procedure uh, classes. Uh, I'm something of a jack of all trades, so I've taught about a dozen different courses in a wide variety of fields from the time I've been here. Mm-hmm. Do, you have a, do you have a favorite that you've taught? Whatever I'm teaching is the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very diplomatic answer. So um, the reason I reached out to you is because I learned through the grapevine that you had a hand in the habeas corpus petitions of John Wayne Gacy. I, I received a phone call one day from uh, the chief judge of the uh, district court uh, in uh, Chicago, uh, federal district court, and he he, uh, he said he had the habeas petition of uh, Mr. Gacy before him, and Mr. Gacy uh, had indicated he didn't want to be represented by the person who had represented him in his last proceeding, which is uh, the appeal from the denial of his state post-conviction relief. And uh, the judge uh, asked me if I was willing to uh, to take on the case and to make a, a relatively, you know, uh, there was some discussion between me and the judge and some other people. And I talked to my dean and, uh, you know, because I still was teaching three courses a term and, and had scholarly responsibilities and mm -hmm. service responsibilities. But I, I did take it on and I represented him for about between two and three years. What's what's it like to get that phone call from the judge? Well, um, I didn't know the judge uh, at all. 
and he didn't know me. Uh, uh, but uh, I had had a program for uh, having appellate judges come and spend uh, uh, a few days at the law school and give a, a variety of talks and uh, go to classes. And, uh, and then we had a dinner for uh, a judge, and I had a variety of people there. And one district court judge uh, was there, and I was talking to her. And after the conversation, she sent out a, a note to the other judges saying she had met a law professor who said there were going to be a lot of habeas corpus cases in death penalty uh, uh, litigation in Illinois that were going to be coming to the court. And she mentioned me as somebody who uh, could be, who has experience and could be appointed. So, I mean, that's how I, I got the, uh, the call. You know, I think that's what I'm supposed to do as, as a lawyer is to take cases for unpopular people and, uh, and, and I took it. And it, it was a, a massive uh, uh, undertaking. It was, there was a 9,000-page record, which is quite extraordinarily large. Uh, and there had been about 146 issues that had been raised in the proceedings uh, before it got to habeas corpus. Some of them are, are not available uh, for habeas corpus, but a great many of them are. So it was an enormous uh, uh, research uh, uh, task. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, I mean, the first thing I did before I took it on was I, uh, I, I talked to uh, the dean. Uh, I mean, I wasn't asking for any course relief or anything of the sort, and, uh, but uh, I just won. And the dean said that's what we're supposed to do as lawyers, uh, which I appreciated. And, uh, and then, uh, then I spoke to the judge, and I made some some suggestions of some matters that concern me and the judge later put this all on the record so there's nothing secret uh, right, about right. it uh, but uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, that when I got when I received compensation that I received it as the case was going on because I had to hire other people mm -hmm. and the judge and I didn't know that that was uh, the normal procedure mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but you know, he agreed to it after checking, and, and though it happened that the, the payments never came. And so after I hired people for about six months paying them, uh, you know, the same amount people would make as, as starting associates at law firms, uh, after about six months uh, I ran out of money, but I got a lot of useful work uh, from them. And then a year or two later I got paid back the money. So did you have any... <clears throat> moral concerns when you got this phone call and was th was there uh, a moral calculation that went on before accepting the case or yeah it's very moral for to represent people who need representation and it's part of our job as lawyers to accept uh, appointments from courts okay so it was really a one side of equation for you there was no consideration about the man no himself. not at all uh, my job is to provide high-quality legal services to somebody uh, who uh, who needs them, and uh, he certainly needed them, and he got a, a very high level of representation. <clears throat> In fact, after the judge ruled, it was a 165-page opinion by the judge, you know, he er, early in it, he thanked me for taking the appeal and, and praised my work. Uh, I guess we should back up a little bit because we haven't actually talked about who John Wayne Gacy is. Um, 
do you have a, a little primer bio ready to go or no I mean, I mean mr gacy was at the time uh, the person convicted of the largest number of murders as a serial murderer uh, 33 uh, instances uh, separate instances of, of murder uh, and uh, uh, his uh, I was representing him uh, about a decade after the uh, trial had had occurred after that there was the appeal and then there was the post-conviction relief petition mm -hmm. and you know the next step is the uh, habeas corpus uh, petition so it it was you know internationally notorious uh, uh, case and you know it's a horrible thing you know all, all those people uh, being killed and uh, uh, and we're not to today perhaps we're somewhat used to mass killings uh, and serial murders that was you know a much more unusual thing at the time and, and it, it horrified a lot of people you had been familiar with the case before not not particularly i i read local newspapers but but i i don't uh, you know, spend a lot of time reading about ongoing uh criminal cases so it would be impossible to to not be aware of of the case but i didn't know any any particular details other than uh mr gacy was convicted of uh killing uh these young men so uh, I'm assuming in the course of your representation that you met with Mr. Gacy. Sure, that's what lawyers do. Yes. Um, and, and we corresponded a great deal. We spoke on the phone frequently. Uh, so I, I think I only uh, visited him uh, twice, but we were in, in, in frequent contact. I think that this is such an interesting case in part because you know, as law students, what, what we learn, especially in professional responsibilities, these duties that we have as attorneys. But I feel like for a lot of people listening, and I know me even sitting here thinking about it, that this would definitely highlight the need for those to be like such hard and fast rules, because I feel like it would be difficult for me to go into like a supermax prison and sit across the table from a gentleman that I know likely committed, you know, these, these horrible, horrible crimes. The, do you still feel anything like that today, or uh, do you still remember those moments pretty clearly? Well, it, it's it's never pleasant going into uh, uh, prisons, even when you know you're going to be able to get out uh, by the end of the day. Uh, but uh, you know, I met him in the uh, uh, in the uh, death row area uh, in. In a prison that was about a uh, hundred miles south of St. Louis in in Illinois, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, where uh, death row uh, was, uh, and uh, uh, and we spoke for for several uh, uh, hours, uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a very complicated case, uh, lots of uh, issues, particularly. Uh, issue the the base. I mean, I had twelve issues and a lot of sub issues, but but certainly the most significant of them had to do with rulings by the trial judge that uh, that limited Mr. Gacy's uh, ability uh, to put on some evidence and 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 ask certain questions. So it was a question of whether that violated his Sixth Amendment rights to present his own defense. Mm -hmm. uh, the other was. Uh, uh, had to do with 
uh, expert testimony uh, relating to uh, Mr. Gacy's uh, uh, mental uh, state. So there's a lot of very technical uh, uh, issues, both legal and, and medical. Mm -hmm. Did you did you get to know him on any personal level, or was it a strictly business relationship? Well, my relationship with all my clients is uh, is 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 a professional relationship mm -hmm. and not a personal relationship. Uh, I, I mean, what I do with clients is I do a a really thorough job of of analyzing the issues and presenting the arguments on their behalf and making sure the client understands uh, uh, the issues and the, the choices and the questions uh, available to me. It, it's my view that, uh, uh, though I, I've had some disagreement with uh, one of my colleagues who's also represented people uh, on this, it's my view that uh, it's the client who is going to serve the, uh, the sentence and pay the penalty and, and the client should get to make various types of decisions, uh, even though I have a great deal more knowledge uh, of the law than most of my clients do. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, so I, I send drafts of everything that I'm working on to the clients. I, I try to explain it. I, I go and visit. I speak on the phone. I, uh, we have correspondence. So that's what I think I, I owe uh, to my client. Obviously, as a lawyer, uh, I can't make uh, frivolous issues, uh, that's a violation of legal ethics. So, you know, at that point, you know, I say, no, I won't make some particular argument that the client uh, might want to, uh, to have. Uh, but, uh, you know, my relationship is, is a professional one, not a personal one. Mm. I I, I'd represented uh, uh, three other people who were on death row in, in Illinois, in two cases arguing their direct appeals to the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, once, twice, uh, and uh, in one case, it was uh, a, a state post-conviction relief petition, which then got me to be arguing in the Illinois Supreme Court uh, on on that one. I also had done a lot of uh, habeas corpus uh, work on appointments by the Seventh Circuit. It, it was my view when I became a a law professor that one that regardless of how it affected my teaching, that it was my obligation as a human being and as a law professor to take uh, appointments. Uh, so I, most of the work I've done is pro bono, uh, and, though I did get uh, paid uh, in the Gacy case. Uh, and, uh, and so I've, uh, and then I think it, it enhances my work as a law professor, but it's, it's not what law professors are traditionally expected to do or rewarded for, mm -hmm. which is the scholarship and the basic teaching. I, was, I guess I was going to ask what, um, what his personality was like, what, his, what it was like dealing with such a complex figure, but... But I'm not going yeah, to answer. I'm not going to answer the the question. You yeah. know, any relationship I have with my clients is is a matter of, yeah, of sure. professional uh, uh, confidentiality, and I don't mm -hmm. I don't talk about that. Were you nervous about just the high profile nature of of his crimes and the amount of public scrutiny that you might come under? I I, I don't want any uh, any publicity. That's not what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. 
although a lot of my students seem to disagree, that cases are decided by the courts, and, uh, and I'm not interested in doing public relations work uh, and, and doing anything that could possibly uh, influence uh, the, uh, the public uh, uh, relating to a, a case. On the, uh, uh, on the other hand, it was, it was, it was my view that uh, anytime the press calls me, I'm, I'm an educator, and so I think everybody should understand what's going on in a case and what the posture of it is and what's the next step that would occur. So I would, I would talk about uh, things like that uh, when, when contacted, but I didn't go out of my way to, to do anything uh, about it. Every now and then I got you know, nasty uh, phone calls in the middle of the night, right. uh, newspaper stories uh, uh, that, uh, that were you know, somewhat uh, critical of the fact that he hadn't been executed yet and that money was being spent on his, uh, his defense. Uh, but uh, you know, that, that was all that, that occurred. So there wasn't, there wasn't much of it. And, and, and that was one of the things I asked the judge. Uh, I said, I don't see any reason why I should have to come every month for a status hearing just to tell you that I'm working on it diligently and, and trying right. to finish it. So what I asked the judge was, uh, bo both because it took time, but also because it would be another uh, time that there'd be publicity about the matter. Right. Uh, so I asked the judge uh, for a year. Uh, and uh, and he said he, he he had no problem with that, but he he set the first status at six months, and, and that worked fine. And and at the end, uh, I asked for a three week extension. Uh, so basically, I met the year that I talked about. So I had to think of what it would what would be involved in you know continuing to teach all my courses, meet all my obligations, and yet do all this work diligently. And that's mm -hmm. why I thought I I needed uh, that amount of, <coughs> of time. Uh, then when I when I realized I knew I had to hire uh, other people and right. and that was perhaps you know uh, the most disturbing thing of what occurred the difficulty of, of finding people who were willing to work on the on the case I can imagine uh, people I would uh, I had known for years or done some work with uh, before I mean hung up the phone on me you know wouldn't wouldn't uh, cooperate uh, in any way. People say, well, I might be willing to do it, but my partners would never uh, do that. Or, you know, this would uh, harm the business of my firm, so I won't do it. But that was all very disappointing. So I, uh, one of the people I hired uh, was a former student of mine who, had, who was working in a firm in, in California. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, she uh, quit her firm and worked full time for me. Uh, and I was wow. paying, as I say, I was paying her what, you know, what people in large law firms were being paid. Uh, she was just out of law school, so, so that was, uh, I thought, an appropriate salary. And she worked for uh, six months and did some very good work. And, and this was sort of a new thing. You know, remember, we were talking about, you know, almost 25, 30 years ago, you know, working with somebody who was 3,000 miles away. I mean, now it's much easier. Right, it was right. a little more difficult yeah. at, at that time. But, it, but since all she's doing is she's working with, what's in, with a part of the record and she's doing legal research, uh, th there was no problem with her being there. There was another person who was, uh, who was local uh, yeah. who also worked with me. And then I had students uh, work with me mm -hmm. uh, on it. At one point, 
and they got credit for it. At one point, we're up. I had five students who were working uh, uh, with me uh, on the case and doing discrete pieces of work. And and you know, in terms of organization, it may, might look overwhelming to say I've got 9,000 pages of transcript. I've got 146 issues. Well, you know. What I did was, you know, you, you research one after another, and before you know it, you get down to a much smaller number, and you write sections of it, and eventually uh, put it all, all together. Do you think the fact that you are an educator maybe allowed you greater latitude to take a case like this, um, you know, given that you weren't going to be running the Raphael law firm afterwards, and a lot of people would see it as, as kind of a wound, unfortunately? Well, that, yes, that's possible. I, I think uh, I, I would assume that if I were in practice and I was given the same opportunity, that you know, that I would, uh, I, that I, I would uh, take it. I, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I, I mean, money isn't that important to me. I get paid a, a salary here, so perhaps it, you know, taking on all the other cases, all of which were pro bono, you know, certainly meant I that the money was irrelevant uh, to me, and uh, uh, so so it, it probably is is some benefit, especially when you're working on cases and they may take years and years. Right. I mean, even if I were being paid in most of the cases, I might not receive the money for five, six, seven years uh, afterward. And if that was and and these cases can be all. Uh, consuming. I mean, I could look back at the records and tell you how many hours that I put in on this case, but this is by no means the case that I put in the most hours. I mean, I think of one case uh, where I put in between two and 3,000 hours, uh, a case that got argued in the Illinois Supreme Court on two separate occasions, as well as some, uh, uh, some trial-level work uh, on uh, post-conviction. Uh, I mean, I got paid $500 for that case. I mean, obviously, I wasn't doing it for the money. Well, what was that case? Um, that was another death penalty case. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, uh, I had some really serious issues uh, uh, relating to ineffective assistance of counsel by the, uh, by the trial counsel. Uh, and, uh, and, and after the judge had dismissed the, the post-conviction petition, uh, I appealed that to the Illinois Supreme Court, and it was the first case that ever had overturned a judge's uh, denial, uh, a, a judge's granting of a dismissal in a post-conviction case. Uh, the standard that now applies was set there, but then there's a later case that altered the, the standard on it. So that then meant that the case was sent back uh, for uh, an evidentiary hearing, which is what the judge had, had denied when he dismissed the case. And then evidence was put on for, uh, for two days. Uh, and then the judge ruled against me, and then I appealed, uh, appealed that to the, uh, to the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, so that, and that case, because we're talking about ineffective assistance of counsel, particularly in terms of, the, uh, of, of what I claimed was the almost total lack of preparation for the sentencing hearing, uh, that, uh, that I, and, and especially the student who was working with me uh, uh, for several years, uh, that we had to do the research as to what a good attorney would have done, could have turned up, to show that you know that what the attorney did was uh, was woefully deficient. Now I ended up, although I won the first time in the Illinois Supreme Court and got the evidentiary hearing, I ended up losing on the substance of it, 
uh, and losing on appeal as well. Do you feel like this deepened, like uh, uh, when we become attorneys, we take this oath to uphold the Constitution and the constitutional rights. Do you feel like working with Mr. Gacy and in his case deepened your connection to that oath? I mean, because I would love to think that I would also, you know, take that case and I would do everything that, you know, we lawyers are taught to do and, and treat him the exact same way as, as any other client. But you don't know how you're going to act in those situations until you get there, you know, and, and what it reveals about yourself. But it seems like you had no qualms doing it. And I, I think that that's very admirable, you know. No, I, no, I didn't. I'd done a lot of representation of people uh, in, uh, in other cases. And, and you know, I think that's what I'm supposed to uh, be doing. So I, I ended up doing this for uh, overall for about 25 years. Uh, most of that time I had students working with me uh, on the cases. And what I would say to the students, uh, if we got oral argument, which we almost always did, uh, even though most cases are decided without oral argument, uh, that uh, I would let the student make the oral argument only if, if I was convinced that the student could do as good a job as, as me. And I'd say in about 70 to 80 percent of the cases, I came to the conclusion that the student could meet that standard, uh, and therefore students argued the case. So, so one of the fir first cases I worked on uh, was a case where a student, uh, it was a murder case, uh, habeas corpus in the Seventh Circuit, student uh, argued uh, and uh, and we, we won the case, uh, so you know, this was before she graduated from law school. Uh, she later went on to be corporation counsel of the city of New York, uh, my, uh, uh, corporation counsel of the city of Chicago, uh, Maya George's, and, and she talks about this case and the, and the work on, she's nice enough to say some nice things about me when she comes back here <laughs> and speaks. Nice. Uh, so I guess, um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about, you know, the importance of, of doing pro bono work, and um, and do you think that you know we as lawyers should always remember to 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 keep doing that uh, throughout our careers, even though maybe we have incentives in the other direction, like if we can afford to do so. Well, I all, you know, a lot of the students come to Loyola uh, saying that they have uh, a significant interest in doing public interest work. Yet the percentage who are able to get full-time jobs working in this area is a small percentage of those who have the interest. And I tried to suggest to them that it's, it's noble to be working on these things full-time if they're lucky enough to be able to get in that position, but, uh, but the, that's not the only alternative. And uh, that if they really have these concerns, they can keep working on things uh, as lawyers and doing uh, pro bono work. I mean, my own experience uh, was uh, uh, when I, I mean, first I, I clerked for a, a, a judge at the, the Seventh Circuit, and then I went to work in a big firm for a couple of years. And right then and there, I, you know, I mean, I felt guilty. I felt I wasn't doing anything other than representing corporations and people with, uh, with resources, and that I wanted to do pro bono work. And, uh, uh, and there were some real difficulties getting uh, 
organizations to accept my services. Uh, there, there are a lot of reasons for that, but it's not that easy to, to volunteer. Either people think you, you don't have uh, experience or they don't want to uh, uh, deal with anybody other than somebody who knows it all or they want to deal with uh, partners uh, or there are some issues about control or funding uh, or pay, payments uh, of costs. I mean, I had real experience, you know, uh, working for a judge on the Seventh Circuit. So I was looking for working on civil legal matters uh, on a pro bono basis, and and I couldn't find anybody who would take my services. And uh, I had uh, previously uh, uh, worked partly volunteering, partly very poorly paid uh, for an agency that worked uh, on behalf of prisoners and ex-prisoners in, in Indiana. Uh, and uh, so working in the criminal area wasn't you know, foreign to, to my thoughts, but you know, I went to people uh, who, uh, uh, who, you know, who ran state appellate defender uh, agencies or, uh, or public defender agencies, and I volunteered my services, and they were, they were grateful for the, the offers. They, you know, they got cases to me. They saw that I did the cases really well, met all the deadlines, didn't cause them problems, gave good representation to the clients. So, so I reached a point when anytime I wanted a case, I could pick up a, a phone and, and, and have a case by the end of the day. Did you, I've always heard about how overworked public defenders are. Did you find that and, and I've, that they're handling up to 100 cases and they're they're looking over the files for five, 10 minutes. What kind of environment are you walking into there, I guess? Well, the, the, there's no question that that's true, but I mean, I'm not, you know, all I'm doing is getting a case that's right. sitting on a shelf uh, in their office. I mean, I worked with some, some absolutely superb uh, lawyers who, who worked in public defense, uh, in part because I was working on, on such serious felony cases uh, those tend to get uh, uh, more time and, and aren't uh, hampered uh, by what you're referring to, which is which is a common uh, problem. Uh, so the people in the murder task force of the Cook County Public uh, Defender, you know, are absolutely superb attorneys. The uh, people in the state appellate defender, both here in Chicago and in the Capitol unit in Springfield, were, were just you know, wonderful attorneys, and, and I worked uh, very much in conjunction with them. One of the things that I got concerned about was that I was going to be representing people by myself. I had nobody to consult with. So, so one of the things, so after I got to know these people, what I said was, well, I'll take, you know, cases from now on, but uh, I required just a little bit of backup uh, from them, uh, and, and they were, uh, you know, gave me you know, really good uh, assistance. I wrote the briefs, but you know they'd they'd file the routine motions on my uh, on my behalf. Mm -hmm. uh, they there would be people. Uh, these are cases that were assigned to them in the first place, so there's nothing improper about them doing something on them. And, and actually, their names appeared on the briefs uh, with me. So, but I would have somebody at the office who was a superb attorney who would read the entire transcript. So at least I had somebody that I could talk to about uh, potential issues. But then, you know, I wrote the, the briefs and did all the work with the clients. Were you, so you were representing as an individual, not through Loyola or anything? Uh, 
I was, I'm just curious if, the, if attorney-client privilege would extend to fellow professors. Uh, I, I, I no, I mean I couldn't talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and and what was what was my concern over time was I mean there are two things. First of all, Loyola works fine in its clinics, but I'm not in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And and everything else about being a law professor, this place is not built for representation and some of the problems that come up in representation. Mm -hmm. So even just the fact that maybe I work through Friday, but a piece of mail comes in, but I don't see it till Monday, and it was mailed a few days earlier than that, so now what, what should have been 14 days uh, to respond, now I'm down to eight. Yeah. And I mean, that would be a problem. Uh, Loyola ended up uh, getting rid of the ability to accept collect phone calls. I was going to say, yeah, if somebody calls you from prison, just does Loyola send you the bill or what? Uh, <laughs> no, they refuse, they refuse the calls and uh, whatsoever. So that's and, a problem? Uh, it was a tremendous problem. Yeah. And I would explain it to them. And, and, it's, and it's clear, you know, I checked before I took on work that Loyola would, through its self-insurance, provide for, uh, for any... Uh, lawsuits. Uh, so I mean, I was doing this as a Loyola professor. There was course credit if students uh, worked on it. Uh, so th in that sense, I was doing it as part of, of Loyola. Mm -hmm. I was doing it in addition to my normal cor uh, uh, course load. I'd usually do between one and three cases at, at any given time. When did you stop taking cases? Uh, about five years ago. It, it, okay. uh, I after a while, uh, well, I mean, just the fact that I, I, I used to run the Rome program, and, and for years, the fact that I had to be away in the summer for, for five weeks, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's a time of really primitive communication, not that I would have had any, any ability to do legal research in Rome, uh, but uh, that I would have to you know, work out something. What happens if something comes up? while I'm away because I have little control over delays that are given and you know I might take a case in the fall thinking that it'll be over by the end of the year but if the state asks for and they ask for and always get uh, <coughs> repeated concurrences then uh, the case goes into the summer and you know what happens if I've got to respond to something what happens if uh, if I'm given a date to appear in court to, to argue something sure. and I had to try to work backup attorneys but when I went to uh, firms they said they would only take them if they had the full control over the case and you know I was out of it totally which I wasn't willing to uh, uh, to do so so there were tremendous difficulties in that regard the there were difficulties simply that I was working by myself I was always afraid I, I believe that I was an excellent attorney I know I was doing really good work on behalf of people but I was always afraid, number one, that I could just miss something mm -hmm. and that it could be an issue or it could be some Illinois Supreme Court case that, the, that I didn't know about because, after all, as a law professor, I'm reading cases from all over the country. I'm, so I'm not the expert on Illinois law that, uh, the, that anybody working in, the, uh, in an agency who's doing this full-time would have to be and would be in a position to talk to other people and everybody. So I could make some really simple mistake that, 
that somebody who is half as good as me as an attorney would never make. And, mm. and that, always, that always worried me. And, and I lost a lot of sleep over, over cases. You know, people's lives would be at stake or people's liberty. And, uh, and so, you know, at some point, I had done it for a long time. I, I just decided, you know, I couldn't really keep doing it. I tried in a couple of ways to institutionalize it here at Loyola. And, but I was unsuccessful. Uh, I tried to get some, uh, some people uh, to take it over. Uh, the school was willing to, uh, to accommodate it as a course. Mm -hmm. uh, they insisted that it be a clinic. The, the, the uh, university said it didn't want any new clinics. So I'm never sure, not sure to this day why these people were insisting on the things they were, but when they wrote their proposal, I told them it's going to be turned down. I told them how to write the proposal so that it would be accepted. And they, re they refused to follow my advice. They made their proposal and it was turned down. So, so I was unable to, to continue. I tried at some point uh, to get some of our past deans to create a clinic uh, dealing with uh, appeals uh, in criminal cases or collateral review, uh, but they were more interested in clinics in other areas. And, and I was never uh, able to interest any of my colleagues in, in working on, uh, on any of the cases. There was one who showed some interest but then uh, decided not to uh, uh, do it. Uh, there, there aren't that many of my colleagues who uh, who are taking court appointments. Uh, there, there have been a few, uh, and uh, uh, one was doing some habeas, and so we would, we would sometimes talk. He gave it up a few years before uh, I did. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it, it's within the structure of what law professors are valued as doing. Uh, this is not one of the things. I think it's really important, uh, but it's not what most people do. I, I think it, not, I mean, I think basically it's what I should be doing as a person and as a lawyer, but uh, I think it, it helps me as a teacher. It, it makes me less certain and more confused, uh, so it may not uh, show it to the students. But if I weren't in court and weren't raising issues, uh, People, students would ask me a question, and I could give them what I believe to be the right answer and, uh, and some, some authority for it. And it turns out when I spend 40 or 50 hours researching the matter, I find out the answer you know, isn't clear at all, or the law, or there's something distinguishable about the case. So I think in that way, uh, it, it, it helped me understand the complexity and uncertainty of a lot of law. Well, I think it's good for us as attorneys to constantly feel a little bit confused, too, because the second we're too self-certain, that's usually when we're wrong. Right. And, you know, every time we do research, the hardest thing of all is when you don't find something. Mm. Uh, because then you don't know if you've just done your research improperly. You don't know for sure that there's nothing out there or whether it's just that you didn't find anything mm -hmm. uh, out there. Uh, and uh, uh, so... Uh, uh, so I, I, I think there is a real benefit for people to be uh, engaged in, in law. And, and we learn about things that we might not have thought about. We see problems that we wouldn't be uh, aware of. Uh, so I think that when we hire professors, 
you know, I value people's experience, even if they don't continue it. Uh, but, but the general trend in law school hiring is to overwhelmingly emphasize scholarship that's already occurred, as well as future scholarship. And uh, so the incentives are not uh, for people to have lots of experience or to continue uh, representing people. So, you know, both of us graduate in a month and um, we spent, you know, we, we created this show to help, like, you know, create a sense of community at the law school. And I'm looking back at my time here and I, I think that there's something really special and unique about Loyola's community. You've been here for, you said, 30 years plus. Um, do you think that there is anything special about the ethos at Loyola? Well, well I've never been anywhere else, so it's very hard for you know, I can't give you any, any comparison. Uh, uh, I think... You know, this is a, a really lovely place. Uh, I think a lot of things we pride ourselves in other places pride themselves uh, uh, in it uh, uh, as well. Uh, students seem uh, comfortable here. Uh, maybe we attract uh, certain types of people to, uh, to for some of our students uh, to come here, which may make us uh, a little bit different. Uh, but I, I don't know uh, how different we are. Uh, from other schools. Fair enough. <laughs> it's an honest answer. It was a, yeah. It's a very political answer. <laughs> well, I'm all set. Uh, yeah. I, uh, thank you for coming on. We I yeah. really appreciate it. Professor was, Raphael, yeah. thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. A lot of good questions. Thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, this was fun. And for Dialogue De Novo, I'm Jake Rome. And I'm late Richard Leibovitz. We'll see, see you, you next time. week. <laughs> Bum, ba, da, 